this is now a Waterloo Spiced Apple uh, fan podcast. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It is very I'm gonna good. I'm going to open one right now, and you guys can hear the the spiciness yep. and the appleiness. Yeah. Oh. Ooh. Seriously, though, what a fabulous, fabulous seasonal Dude. flavor. So I'm drinking it right now as well. I, I don't, I'm not sure it's seasonal, right? They usually have their flavors year-round, I think, I don't right? know. Because they do but, the, um, like the red, white, and blue berry just in the summer. Yeah. Oh, really? I thought mm-hmm. they did that year-round. I don't think so. Maybe they do, but I, I, no. I've never seen this. Yeah, no, but when I first saw uh, when I first saw um, the Spiced Apple, like somebody post about it, uh, I was just like, yeah, there's basically a 0% chance that isn't going to immediately become one of my favorite seltzers ever, and it like immediately is. Yeah, it's man, so it's, good. It's, it's, it, so the Pink, Pink Lady Apple... Is, yeah, is that's also also great. Yeah. But I think this is immediately yeah. my favorite apple. Yeah, seriously, because no, a- apples like a uh, it's kind of like a wasteland for seltzers. A lot of yeah. places don't do apple, especially red apple. Mm-hmm. Um, Stop and Shop has a great honey crisp apple flavor. That's I haven't right. had it in a few years, uh, but that one's great. Mm-hmm. The pink li- the pink lady apple and lemon by Polar is great. But this yeah. is yeah, I think this is my new number one spiced apple. Yeah, it's 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 really good. I like it's it so a lot. Good. You sent it to me yesterday, and I actually had forgotten, but I, I knew I was going yeah. shopping today, and, and I was like, oh, because I was going to go to Whole Foods for some stuff, and they usually have Waterloo. And yeah. uh, and on my way to the register, I passed the display of it, and I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, I have amazing. seltzer. So, I'm not, like, low on seltzer, so it wasn't even – I wasn't thinking. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you weren't thinking about seltzer. Uh, yeah, so anyway, left on redheads, run, don't walk to your nearest grocer that carries the Waterloo brand mm-hmm. seltzer carbonated water and get yourself some spiced apple today. Yeah. That's the left unread seal of approval. Yeah, absolutely. That would be that would be one of the few <laughs> uh, I feel like uh, you know, Evan's got a very strict no sponsorship policy. I you know, I can be bought. Uh, <laughs> but I feel like if, if water okay I will say if Waterloo came up to us yes I would do Waterloo yeah or like Polar I feel like like a <laughs> yeah, seltzer polar, sponsorship yeah. would be one of the few things that could make this oh yeah crack. yeah they could just pay me in like free seltzer for uh yeah you know for for the year it would be a legitimate yeah. um expense reduction for for both of us yeah you know it's, it's I spent so much <laughs> I spend a lot of money on seltzer <laughs> oh dude I would guess I spent yeah I definitely well, over a thousand a year for sure, I would imagine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Definitely. And especially, yeah. like, I get seltzer delivered, a, like, a good amount of the oh, time. Really? Because, yeah, what, from, well, like, one of the few places I can get Waterloo is either, like, at um, Whole Foods, but I don't always yeah. want to go to Whole Foods because it's a nightmare. Um, yeah. Or GoPuff. GoPuff has, has Waterloo, oh. so I can get specifically Waterloo, like, pineapple delivered to my house. Yeah. And because, um, like, they have the good flavors. So I'll yeah, get yeah. like, I don't know, if, I don't know how you feel about that one. Waterloo pineapple fucking rules. Um, oh, anyway, Waterloo yeah. pineapple is great, dude. Great, 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 really good. Great seltzer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They they do uh, unorthodox flavors better than anyone else. Like their standard flavors are are fine, like the the lime and the whatever. But they're they, they they're do like, standard flavors better than anybody else. Right, they're like, good. You know but what like, I mean? Like like gen- yeah. Anyway, what, what um, say? I feel like where they shine is that they they flavors that other companies might try, like spiced apple, right? 
uh, which it, to me would be a non-starter if I saw that it was coming from a lot of other companies. I would just assume it would be oh, bad. Oh, Bubbly did it. I wouldn't give a fuck, yeah. Right. But Waterloo, dude? Nothing but faith in these. Oh. In, in, they're they're yeah. flavorologists. Yeah. Uh, really, yeah. really Although, high quality. Uh, so, yeah, I do like this because it replaces one that I was very sad to see go. Aha. When Aha first dropped, they had a uh, apple ginger. That I really liked. I usually yeah. don't like ginger seltzer, but I love the apple ginger. What? <laughs> Nothing. What? The look on Nothing. your face. Nothing. Yeah, it's because I, I just don't okay. worry about it. I'll tell you. I'll tell you in a second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm listening. Right, I'm not um, trying to derail you. You're derailing yourself right now. I did, you did, for the listener. Cam just made a very ridiculous face. Um, I didn't. So I w- <laughs> it was very funny. Oh. <laughs> But yeah, no, I I do miss the apple ginger. So spiced apple, this is a good this is a good comeback in a big way for a red apple with a little with a little spice to it. Mm, it's so it's so so tasty and it's crisp. Yeah, yeah, it's very crisp. Yeah, yeah, like an autumn breeze. Hmm. Yeah. Um, right, cool. Um. Any anything else? I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. We've literally we've just talked about. Seltzers. Yep. And I'm trying to like rack my brain if anything anything else important exists. Oh, we Avatar did I too. finally went and I finally went and did that. Oh yeah. That'll be cool. <laughs> yeah. Um that's coming out soon. December, I believe. Yeah. Um I finally went and tagged along with Evan at his uh Magic the Gathering draft this yep. past week. Uh, that yeah, was our monthly cool. draft. Yeah, uh, yeah, which we, since as co-winners, you and I, we get to pick the next uh, booster boxes. I was saying that we should do Dragons of Tarkir and Cons of Tarkir. Sure, yeah, I don't really care. Uh, something old like that would be preferable to me, just like something yeah. cool that I haven't seen, you know? Because in between yeah. when I was a kid and played Magic, and then when I kind of got back into it a little bit, there's like so much stuff that I've never seen, um, so yeah, yeah, whatever. That's that's fine. Um, but just to zoom back in on what Evan was saying about us being co-winners, uh, yeah, it's it's gonna it's. I feel like so in my storied Magic: The Gathering career, which is not storied at all, I have yeah. lived constantly in the shadow <laughs> of one man, uh, and that man, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, is my my co-host Evan. So, yeah. Evan. I don't, I'm sure you can tell uh, to listen to him. One of his superpowers is that when yeah. he gets into something, he gets very into that thing. And he got into Magic the Gathering and he got very into it. And he, at like 26, I think, is the first time I ever played. Was that like 26 yeah, or something? Yeah. And uh, so then, you know, went and like spent time like looking into like making good decks and like you know, applying fucking game theory and, like, whatever. So, um... Yeah, I'm not gonna be bitch-made when I play Magic. No, for sure. You're hysterical. (laughs) Watching you play is the funniest shit I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) But, um... And I don't... I mean that, like, with nothing but love. It was was so fucking entertaining. Um, Yeah. But so... You know, he's got all these cards and stuff. And so when we play, we're usually playing with his cards. Or, like, maybe I'll have, like, a pre-made deck or something. Um, and so he knows all the cards and he's, he's just always winning. He's just forever winning. And, you know, I think it was starting to maybe get to the point where there was perhaps an idea (laughs) that that was a result of some sort of inherent skill differential. Um, 
I don't know if that's true, but you know, maybe that was sort of the case. Uh, and so he well, keeps we've played with pre-made decks before, and I've wiped wiped the floor with your ass with pre-made decks. When what? When we were hammered in Brooklyn? Well, not just that, but that too. <laughs> you were talking shit too, and then I beat you every game. Yeah, that's fair. But. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got a lot of bad draws, you know. But uh, yeah, so anyway, my do, point. Being, I remember all the draws. They were real bad. They were really bad. Uh, they were really bad. Those decks were not shuffled. Yeah. Okay, anyway. <laughs> All this to say, he's been, I've been feeling really like jealous because he's been going to this draft tournament once a month, which, you know, look it up. We don't need to go into that. And so yeah. finally I was like, dude, like, can I like come to that? And he's like, fuck yeah, like absolutely. So I went yeah. and and I was going in fully expecting. I actually I didn't know what to expect. Okay. Well, uh, you kept saying that you thought that you like no you you did go in expecting one thing that you were going to lose, like you just like kept talking about how. Well, okay. To be you. perfectly honest, to mm-hmm. a little bit of that was just me setting the stage for the potential <laughs> of that to happen. I wasn't actually <laughs> dead set on sucking. Like I play yeah. some arena. Like I know I know how to play Magic, and uh, I'm also fairly competitive, but like. You know, I, I I didn't want it to be like I came in hot and then got smoked and looked yeah. like a ch- like a chump. So I you know I went in modest and said oh, I'll probably just lose. Long story short, you know, did pretty well, and it came down to <laughs> the semifinal round. It was me and another guy, and it was Evan and a and a mutual friend. And yeah. the winner of my game and the winner of Evan's game would go to face each other. And now, when I say to you folks, okay, <laughs> that. I had a like a like a fantasy in the back of my head that I would show up at this thing the first week. Evans never won this whole thing. That I would show up yeah. week one and fucking win the whole thing. I had a fantasy that that would occur <laughs> and it would make me so happy to fucking win it week one. But I was like, that's really yeah. not realistic. So anyway, here we are, semifinals, and I go up against this other kid, and I beat him twice, boom boom, in like fifteen minutes, and. Yeah. You know, after our second game, I look up and and Evan's still like on his first game. It's a two out of three situation. <laughs> Their game went over two hours, dude. So so here's the over thing. Over so two my, hours. So my, our mutual friend is like famous for doing the longest fucking magic games. We all make fun of him for it every time we do this draft because his rounds drag on so long because he just takes forever to play. I'm a very aggressive player. I like to yeah. uh, I like to put the pressure immediately, and yeah, I'm just sitting there like I was also like peeling in my eyes like like just oh, like scratching at my cheeks. It was fucking like, horrible. And so you know, I was also not prepared for the fact that this draft was going to be like it went ended up going twelve hours, right? So when Evan's game yeah, starts, we're at hour ten, and then it goes for I'm not exaggerating over two hours. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, fucking, I'm exhausted. I have work tomorrow. I had not eaten all day. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I would have brought a sandwich. So I'm sitting here, but all I can think to myself is, you know, if it was anyone else right now, I would just forfeit the potential to win. Because I'm, I'm now in running to go into the finals and maybe win this whole fucking thing. Yeah. But it's fucking Evan. It might be Evan. And, I, and my fantasy, as I've described to you, is to beat this whole fucking thing and to beat Evan. And I had already yeah. beaten Evan once. <laughs> You know, and Evan was like, oh, well, I hadn't understood the mechanics of my deck yet. Well, I hadn't used either of my two best cards yet either. So it was going to be a fucking showdown. And I was like, I'll, I'll be fucking damned. I'm not going to forfeit and give Evan a win on a forfeit. Yeah, I'm you not were doing sitting it. There, like, I could feel the heat coming off. Dude, of your I was body like, fuck, I cannot like... wait for this game to end. And I didn't care. If I had lost, like, to Evan, I could have lived with that because I've lost to Evan many times. And 
I can I can deal with that. But I wasn't going to hand him a win. And yeah. so finally, finally, I'm like watching the seconds tick by. I can fucking hear my hair growing. <laughs> finally, Evan pulls out the win, which like it was inevitable for like the last 30 minutes of that game that you were yeah. going to win. But it, it just finally, he let it happen. He should have let it happen forever ago. It sucked of him yeah. to drag that out as long as he did, but whatever. Evan finally wins, and so I'm like, all right, fuck it. In and out. We're going to do this in 10 minutes, whatever. And I'm, like, getting myself geared up. And then the guy who's running the whole thing goes, oh, my God, thank God. All right, Evan and Cam, you guys just split the win, Uh, whatever. We'll call it it a night. It's way too late. And Evan was like, yeah, oh, sure, yeah, sounds great. And I was just like, you fucking kidding me? (laughs) I couldn't even even help it. I didn't mean to sound like. You weren't even going to split the pot with me. So the pot was like. Uh, like a bunch of booster packs. I had to like keep telling no, dude, just take half of them. We both well, won. No, no, no. I didn't care. The, here's the thing. I wasn't. You didn't want the prize. You just wanted to win. Well, at that point, yeah. it wasn't even that I cared about winning. I just felt so. I mean, and and that kid said it best at the end. I got blue balls so fucking hard <laughs> at the end of this thing because it, I didn't. There was no resolution. It was just oh, yeah. okay. And and I was like, you mean to tell me I've been sitting here for the last two hours? I could have just gone home. But I couldn't have because if I'd gone home, then Evan would have been the winner. I had to sit it out for the luxury of not getting to figure out who's the winner. And here's the thing. That magic might be gone forever now. I might never get that chance again. Yeah, you yeah you may never like yeah because you you were on fire. Dude. I was on fire, dude. I was smoking through that. Smoking I, people I, left and right. Yeah, I was. I lost a couple games. One, I had a really bad pull, and then I ended up beating that kid again in the in the semifinals. Mm-hmm. I lost to to your opponent there in the semifinals. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that game just dragged on and on and on. And I made a stupid mistake. I didn't want to reveal to the world that I had like everyone's least favorite card in this set. So I yeah. didn't use it, and if I'd used it, I would have won. So I would have had almost I, – if I'd beaten Zach, I would have had the fucking best record in the whole thing going into the yeah. finals. Anyway, um, so at, let it just be known that I I went the distance, okay? <laughs> there was no solidified winner. Evan and I are co-champions. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But yeah. I just wanted to – I wanted around with the champ, dude. You I didn't, though. That's the thing. The the, yeah. the, the 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 match was canceled on a technicality yeah. and we we're just we just wrapped the belt around both of us it's a big belt yeah. <laughs> it's, anyway yeah, it's a large belt. so i look forward to a further opportunity to beat evan but it might never yeah. come and i'm just like really sad yeah, that my moment it, in the it sun could be your only up- yeah dude, like, you got to the world series let's be honest dude. you got to the be- world series in your rookie season and dude yeah and it, it ended it was like 19 it didn't even end in like a spectacular like loss because of like the sun's being out yeah i would have been oh, i would have oh, been out. fine losing i just i didn't even get to lose i didn't even get to lose yeah. to you in the finals i <laughs> like yeah. so i was i was so butthurt but anyway it was yeah. really fun i don't know if you guys can tell i had a really good time so <laughs> yeah uh all right. yeah well, anyway yeah. all right so we're 15 minutes into it um so yeah let's uh let's get into part three of our ancient mystery series all yeah. right so Let's get into it.
But first, uh, so, uh, I did forget, uh, to cite my sources in part two. Um, you know, I, I used the same books as I did in episode one of the Ancient Mystery series, which is Walter Burkert's, uh, Ancient Mystery Cults. I do mention Burkert a couple times by name, uh, in the episode, but I forgot to cite the book. And I also used Marvin W. Myers, uh, The Ancient Mysteries. So I just wanted to, uh, to get back into that. I like to cite my sources at the end of episodes. All right. Yeah. I should start doing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so if people are interested, they know they know where to look, and if they have yeah. a bone to pick with something you said, they can see where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Well, um, anyway, yeah, you can so. you can send a mean email to Bob Wikipedia for all of mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So for today's episode, I would like to warn our dear listeners that I'm going to venture into some heady territory. Nards will be fully shredded. <laughs> Uh, so there will be a lot of discussion on theology and esoterica when it comes to the analysis and practice of religion, and also in our understanding of religion and how it plays into history. This is something that I'm incredibly interested in, but I will try my best to work slowly for those who have cut their teeth less on this sort of thing. Uh, we will be discussing Gnostic philosophy and Christian Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, metaphysics, and myth-making. Uh, and metaphysics, for those unaware, it's just the uh, kind of like the um, philosophy of principles or things uh, of deriving from first principles, like in, in like a abstract theses. Uh, so I encourage you to pause at any point you need and look up what we're discussing, as it will help understanding not just this episode, but the entire series in the long run. But anyways, let's get after it. Um. Can I so can I ter- pause anytime I need to? Sure, if you can pause. Yeah. Okay, I guess Are that sort pausing? of counts. Well, no, that's sort of that, I, yeah. That was like a test run. All right, that un-pause. was a test pause, and yeah, unpause. Unpause. Okay, so while the term mystery theology is a long and widely used term, the surviving theological and liturgical literature on the ancient pagan mysteries pales in comparison to what survives of ancient Judaism and Christianity. The scholar Franz Cumont called the loss of the liturgical pagan books the most regrettable one and the great shipwreck of ancient literature. What knowledge we are able to glean is from indirect sources presumed to derive from the sphere of the ancient mysteries. The three kinds of texts that have been invoked as evidence are the Gnostic and Hermetic literature, the magical papyri, and the Greek romances. These three sources are markedly different and each presents its own specific problems, and none of these approaches are immune to the attack of skeptics. Now, the interpretation of romances begins with the Golden Ass by Apuleius, which of course explicitly involves an, an initiation rite into the cult of Isis and Osiris at the end of it, and yet outside of this example, few romances have found adherence. Many Greek romances involve ancient mystery rites, and yet it is difficult to say whether these are used as literary devices like we see uh, like we see so often in books and films in modern times are the elaborate religious rituals of ancient literature real or are they authorial license not really reflective of uh, reflective of how things actually happen think of a police or legal procedural show today how many of these would be good sources for how the law actually works if 2000 years from now civilization has collapsed and all has been lost about the law except for fragments of the shows and movies so common today Would these be good representations of how things actually happened to a future civilization? 
The romance Ethiopica by Heliodorus diligently exploits religious dimension, but it centers not on mysteries proper, but specifically on the Helios cult. These romances are notable for illustrative details, but are not independent keys to the mysteries. Now, <clears throat> and feel free to, to join in here at this point, because I know that you know quite a bit about this stuff as well. For Gnostic and Hermetic literature, the study is provided by the foundation of the publication of the Nakamadi Library. The, the Nakamadi Library, for those unaware, is a collection of early Christian and Gnostic texts discovered in Upper Egypt in 1945. Gnosticism, again for those unaware, is a strange early version of Christianity that resembles in a lot of ways Neoplatonic ideology, believing the physical world a lower form of existence ruled by a demiurge, with the higher form of existence being a spiritual realm ruled by a more benevolent god, and that Jesus was sent to alert mankind to its imprisonment in this lower world. Gnosticism on the whole, and also Christian Gnosticism, believes that through attainment of some arcane knowledge, the Greek word gnosis meaning, meaning knowledge, uh, so through the attainment of this arcane knowledge, enlightenment or salvation can be achieved. Now this is an extremely brief recounting, and perhaps I will discuss it in later episodes of the podcast. But for now, that's very briefly what it is. Mm -hmm. Anything you'd like to add? No, I mean, that's like, I, believe it or not, I, I don't know like a ton about Gnostic Christianity. Um, I remember yeah. studying it in school, but um, I'm probably, that's a decade ago. So <laughs> um, I, I, I know yeah. that. I could have said that to you. Um, okay. I could have given you that summary, but um, no, let's see where you're going with it. I, I don't want to like right. veer off into uncharted territory before we've had a chance to develop some ideas. All right. So. Uh, this Nagamadi library had a profound influence on the understanding of early Christianity, and it was discovered in a fucking sealed jar <laughs> by a farmer yeah, yeah, yeah. in 1945, and this is like nearly 2,000-year-old literature. Right. And it was written in the Coptic language, just preserved in the desert sands of uh, Upper Egypt, mm -hmm. which Upper Egypt is uh, counterintuitively in Southern Egypt. Yes. Because the Nile flows north. Um. So, yeah, so some guy was just, like, farming in the desert, and then he was like, oh, look at this fucking jar. And he's like, fuck. <laughs> and just found, like, this crazy text of, like, previously unknown books of, like, of the Bible. Right. Like, totally different, like, uh, gospels and shit. And, you know, these are uh, of a much different type of Christianity than, you know what would turn into Catholicism and orthodoxy. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's yeah. that's something that we've touched on a little bit in this show, but that I think gets yeah. lost in translation for a lot of um, modern Christians is yeah. just how much the, you know, and obviously there are still tons of different sects and understandings and biblical translations and whatever that are, you know, perfectly alive and well today. Um, mm -hmm. But each of those owes itself so much to such a diverse lineage um yeah. and the christianity of you know 2000 years ago um generally would look markedly different to anything that you would recognize yeah. as christianity today and there are so many little extinct branches and whatever and gnosticism um as sort of a theological concept and the way that it in interacted with christianity is definitely one of the more interesting and sort of I don't know if fringe is the right word, but definitely one of the more interesting um, lenses through which to view Christian theology. Yeah, and you know, I think it's funny too, like uh, Gnosticism is sort of like almost this 
I you know I guess if you're looking at it as a heresy and therefore you know something right. to be avoided, you can view Gnosticism as almost this like uh, recurrent virus within Christianity where it constantly pops up mm -hmm. in these different uh, in new permutations. You know, Manichaeism being a form of uh, Gnosticism. And uh, if I can give a shout out to friend of the pod Jimmy Falangong, he has a series uh, right now on Catharism. And the Cathar heresy, with which Catharism is again, it's like sort of one of these like Gnostic virus uh, permutations that that has you know come up as a heresy. And I, you know, a lot of times with like Gnosticism, you see like a rejection of the physical world, and you know this belief again, you know, like with Neoplatonic thought of this like uh, metaphysical realm of abstractions, and you're trapped within this sort of physical world, and therefore rejection. Of physicality is, is right and in, fa in fact that like the physical world beneficial. and your place in it is sort of inherently flawed and evil you know because yeah. it was created by this uh generally e is it fair to say the demiurge is usually malevolent yeah malevolent maybe not evil but definitely but does, definitely doesn't have not, like have doesn't like, have your best interests out right it's not like a loving god um and so by virtue of the fact that like your body was created by this demiurge, mm -hmm. it itself is evil. And like escape yeah. from that is the flawed, yeah. is the the main um the main goal, right? Of, yeah, of, uh, yeah, of attaining this gnosis. Escape. Right. Yeah. Getting free of that. And so it's a it's it feels really morbid, but I mean mm -hmm. it's it's just a, a different lens through which, and, and lots of other religions uh, had Gnostic, you know, um, mm -hmm. sects, right? Like Zoroastrianism famously had Gnostic mm -hmm. sects, Judaism. Um, and then there yeah. were, you know, Gnostic interpretations of the polytheistic religions of, of, of yeah. the Mediterranean. Yeah, there's Gnostic paganism. Right. Yeah, yeah so Gnosticism so. Is, uh, can be used uh, broadly to describe this uh, this uh, thing that happens within religion, certain types of religions, and also Gnosticism can be used uh, specifically to refer to Gnostic Christianity. Uh, right. I'll try to, uh, and you know, correct me if I don't, but usually I'll try to call it Christian Gnosticism in this, right. yeah. in this series, since we are we will be touching on Gnosticism and other um, and other uh, religions and cults. I remember being in high yeah. school and uh, when I first learned what Gnosticism was, or, or at least became aware of it as a uh, as a, a theological lens or whatever, um, yeah. a, a kid in band that I was in band with was talking about how for his like 17th or 18th birthday, his parents got him a Gnostic Christian Bible. And I remember just being like, what, what is that? <laughs> you well, know? Like the Dead Sea Scrolls or some shit? I don't know. I, I, I don't remember. Um, but since then i've i've tried to like look that up and i i yeah. i don't know it's if whatever it was it must have been something pretty pretty esoteric and sketchy <laughs> yeah some, i would uh, love to own a copy of it <laughs> it would be i'm sure it's cool yeah, yeah. um but anyway With some of the forbidden forbidden gospels yeah um, and i mean a lot of that stuff you could find um like the gospel of judas and yeah, shit like that the gospel gospel of judas the gospel of um mary magdalene uh, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of, and th those are, uh, so the dead screen, dead sea scrolls are a different thing than the Nag Hammadi library, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh -huh. But that's a, just another famous, you've probably heard of the dead sea scrolls yeah. listener. Um, just another like collection of old, um, dubious gospels that yeah. are considered heretical now, but you know, yeah. early Christians might have considered canon. Yeah. 
Um, so one of the things that the Nag Hammadi Library has done is reduce the likelihood of Christian Gnosticism itself having a pagan origin, or at least like an origin in, in uh, pagan mysteries. Uh, some of what is written, including the, quote, mystery of the bridal chamber, excuse me, um, the mystery of the bridal chamber uh, in the library, has a degree of directness in describing sexual encounters that is hardly even paralleled in the Roman Bacchanalia. Hmm. Uh, so overall, it seems these sources were written in a milieu so different from the one that the mysteries thrived in that their ability to better elucidate the mysteries remains limited, most likely. Mm-hmm. So as for magical papyri, and again, I, I read a magical spell in uh, the last episode. The Isis love spell. Yeah, that's right. And I, I got to tell you, you've been looking uh, real good to me ever since. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Maybe I maybe I recited it with our names in it. Yeah, uh, you said it a little it. too well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, as for the magical papyri, there is a long tradition of mystery religions and magic coexisting and having mutual interrelations, especially when it comes to charismatics. You'll remember from the first Mystery Cults episode that charismatics were adherents to a cult that traveled on their own throughout regions preaching the cult. So the Eleusinian mysteries had parallels in Egyptian magical texts, although those Egyptian texts barely mentioned Eleusis or Bacchus or Mata Magna. Uh, Mater Magna. However, a major difference between magical texts and mystery liturgies is that the former tends to be solitary with the possessor of the text, having dreams of omnipotence or some other practical end, while the mystery adherent is celebrating communally. Mm-hmm. So a magical text is just for you, and a mystery liturgy is for all of us. Overall, though, we can never really hope to find the Nag Hammadi Library of mystery cults because they almost assuredly never existed. As Aristotle said, the goal of those undergoing mysteries should uh, should not be to learn, but to be affected, suffer, or experience. At the highest grade of philosophical mysticism, learning comes to an end and the vision in its purity think the epoptea of Eleusis, is granted if and only if the adherent has become fit for the purpose. Learning is presupposed in the mysteries. One had to be part of the mysteries. One had to be there in the moment of the right in order to truly understand the nature of the mystery. Mm-hmm. This is why some all-clarifying texts will never be discovered. Speech, the logos, had an integral part in the mysteries, and they possessed a hieros logos, a sacred tale. So the moment if you have to ask, you'll never know. Basic, you know, more or less, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not just about what's being said; it's how it's being said, how it's being presented. Right. It's this whole the whole ritual is necessary for the right to to make any sense to the adherent. Mm-hmm. Of course, books did have a major part in the mystery rites. Eschines, an orator and statesman from Attica, had to read the books while his mother performed the rituals when he was a boy. You see in basically every mystery cult texts used that have invocations to gods and prayers interspersed with short ritual prescriptions and formulae. The Logoi and written texts and mysteries, however, were not like the Torah, Bible, or Quran, and that those self-same Torah, Bible, and Quran form the basis of their respective religions. Right. There is no control from an organization exhibited over the Logos used in a rite. The order learned its meaning through traditional practice. There are, of course, mystery craftsmen who quite clearly are just taking the money of their clients without imparting mysticism or knowledge upon the adherent. 
but in the abstract and often in practice, the order would be legitimate in their work. I think that that's one of the most interesting and and kind of challenging concepts to grasp, even for somebody like you or I, right, who are not yeah. uh, weren't raised in um, a particular modern religion or at least not extensively, and and you know try to have sort of an objective view of these things. It's we are so we are so accustomed uh, in Western society to the Abrahamic approach to religion, mm-hmm. um, to yeah. the exclusivity of those religions, and to the centrality uh, and orthodoxy of the texts used in those religions. Um, extreme yeah. examples being, you know, Islam, wherein the Quran is the infallible and direct word of God. Um, and then, you know, you look at like the Christian Bible, and even though that might not always be the case, uh, those that those texts that you have are the result of thousands of years of ecclesiastical debate mm-hmm. and synods and whatever that have distilled down and you know clipped out these sort of heretical uh, gospels and things like that. Um, yeah. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact, you know, even for people like us who love this stuff, that you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, um, even reading you know, a Christian theological text would have been a lot like what you're describing mm-hmm. here with these cult texts. There wasn't this yeah. unified idea. And so, again, just to sort of reiterate, like somebody, you know, um, a, a Manichaeist uh, and, you know, uh, what would have passed as like a hardline Catholic a thousand years ago would have had radically different Bibles and then interpretations of those Bibles. And nowadays, you know, we have mm-hmm. a certain amount of that where people might read, you know, the, the, the Catholic Bible or the King James Bible or whatever. But even, mm-hmm. even those, you know, texts which differ slightly in terms of content and translation are essentially the same text. You know what I mean? They, none of them, none of the mainstream Christian sects include any of the like blatantly heretical um, things that have been clipped out over the centuries. So, um, it's just, it's hard to wrap your head around the idea that, you know, there was such a diverse offering of, um, literature and that, you know, none of it was strictly canon. And then you get into these cults and it's like, that's watered down even further. So it just, it's also like the, these mystery cult gods, they weren't jealous. Like you could, yeah, join a bunch of these generally. Right. I will get into some exceptions later, but yeah, you could be an adherent to many. You know, I mean, these these were not jealous gods. They they were uh, quite uh, quite forgiving of you liking their siblings. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 There wasn't this this uniform notion that like, oh, well, I believe in. I mean, let's just pick like one that everybody knows. I believe in Zeus, so I can't believe in fucking you know, uh, uh, Osiris. It's like, no, nah, yeah. man, like th- they might all exist out there in different parts of the world. Yeah. It's only when and you can be an adherent to them too. It's like, right. you know, you're right. Like you can be a priest to one end to the other, you know? Right. Um, and that's yeah. not, I don't think that's true all the time, but it's not like we will get into that yeah, specifically we'll into not true either. Yeah. Right. Like it's yeah. not a given that one particular cult or, or religion will exclude you from, and it would differ just, from place to place too. Right. So, like, a, like a cult of a specific god in one area would have different rules than that same cult in a different area. Right. I mean, heck, you, you look at Rome. You know, and I don't mean to drag us too deep into the weeds here, but yeah. you know, look at how many different aspects of Jupiter there are. You know, yeah. is it all the same Jupiter? Are they all different Jupiters? Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it is and isn't. It's, I don't know. Yeah. People were just way more comfortable with that, the loosey-goosiness of what they believed. Listeners, are you still with us? Because we're going to get even more abstract. Um, so, the Logoi, and I should say, so Logoi is the plural of Logos. Logos, the word. And you see this too in like certain translations of the Bible, Genesis. The word, the Logos, was with God. And the Logos was God. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Logos is, is kind of the word there. So the Logoi of the mysteries developed along three different levels. Those of myth, those of nature allegory, and those of metaphysics. They developed in a sequence historically, but without the later stages destroying the earlier. So it's this sort of constant um, uh, coming forth of understanding, but mm-hmm. without the previous one, or the, the subsequent destroying the previous. So they can be seen as emerging from Homeric myth to pre-Socratic nature allegory. So here, think uh, Hesiod's Theogony, about the creation of the natural world, or even Genesis in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it goes all the way to Platonic metaphysics. So myth is the oldest and most widespread way to, quote, speak about gods. It is a traditional tale structured by actions performed by anthropomorphic actants, and myths are rooted in oral traditions of basically every society since prehistory. Myth had a profound impact on mysteries, most especially those of Demeter, Remember in the first episode how the Eleusinian mystery mirrored the myth of Demeter, even in the grain rising up from the basement, like up from the underworld. Each cult is bound to a divinity myth. Frustratingly, there is Mithras. There was clearly a Mithras myth, as depicted in the series of scenes that surrounded the central panel of the Mithras reliefs and caves. The fundamental event was likely Mithras slaying the bull, seen in the center of the relief. 
but no text has been preserved that tells the story. Only the word cattle thief, a cattle thief, Buglopus, survives. There are sequences such as Kronos yielding the scepter to Zeus, Zeus fighting the giants, and the birth of Mithras from the rock. But who was Mithras's father? There are the trials of Mithras and the bull, finally with its sacrifice. There is Mithras with Helios in his chariot, and then Helios and Mithras fighting, and Mithras subduing Helios. There are no texts to elucidate just what these scenes mean, and it is for this reason that Mithras has become so popular in the modern day, and drawn upon people's imaginations so much. But more on that later. He's a mystery man. Some of the myths told to initiates were possibly done so under horrible oaths of secrecy, involving bizarre, cruel, or obscene incidents. There are allusions to bizarre sexual relations such as incest, including between parent and child, and of an especially big sacrifice, not just a pig, Ooh. this is it in quotes, to learn deeper mysteries of Kronos. I can only wonder what that may have been. Yeah, like a baby or something. Yeah, speculation on my part, but considering it's Kronos, yeah. who famously ate his own children, I would wonder, you know, myths are, the initiation rites are supposed to mimic things that happen in the actual myths mm -hmm. yeah it's a baby for sure yeah um there were dismemberment and castration mysteries held in deep secret these particularly gruesome secrets could not constitute the major mystery secret but were a part of them we also see in the mysteries whenever there is some mourning that joy then follows and mater magna the days of blood described in episode two are followed by the days of joy for instance in a mystery scene described by Firmicus Maternus, the throats of Miste are anointed, and the priest whispers, Be confident, Miste, since the god has been saved. You too will be saved from your toils. It is unknown what mystery he is referring to, but it is clear that the fate of the god is parallel in the myth and ritual enacted upon the initiate. One thing that is special about the mysteries of Mithras is that they are mysteries without a suffering god myth, such as the Egyptian mysteries of Isis and Osiris. Even Christianity has a suffering god. Yet Mithras really stands in a special position without suffering and yet being the subject of a mystery. Another aspect of myth in the mysteries is that they communicate living experience. In the Eleusinian mysteries, Miste abstained from food as Demeter did, and they end the fast when the first star is seen again as Demeter did. The castrated Galli of Kybal obviously imitated Attis, Attis having castrated himself. The worshippers of Isis imitated her by beating their breasts and singing in joy when Osiris had been found. Explaining the myth through allegory is wholly less developed than the myth-making view, and it receives much less scholarly attention as it is less mystic. However, some ancient sources do view nature as something wishing to be concealed as itself mystical. Strabo refers to concealment in mysteries, which imitates nature that shuns direct perception. So in this way, with some mysteries, nature is received through the mystery proceedings as mysterious nature itself. <laughs> Being in one of these groups was... <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, I, these people would have been so fucking silly. Dude, yeah, just having no idea how things... Yeah, they're just fucking cutting off their own dick. Well, dicks. of course, you see, by cutting off your own dick, you're letting on a little secret. Huh. The big secret? <laughs> no, of course no, not, the silly. That Attis held. <laughs> but a secret that leads to the secret. Oh, thanks for your balls. Dicks out, gentlemen. Dicks out. <laughs> All right, gents. <laughs> yeah. All right, fellas. Um, but anyway, let's get to chopping. <laughs> yeah. 
The knife's hot. The balls are on the table. Let's go, boys. Um, so it, it is in the Eleusinian Mysteries that we can really see allegorical nature play out. The story really is of the life of the cycle of life and death through Mother Earth's recognition in Demeter with the grain coming to life and eventually re dying and returning to the womb to be born again at the next changing of the seasons back to spring and summer. We get into this a lot in uh, the first episode. But the entire Eleusinian mystery is, is, is an allegory of the life cycle of grain, really. Um, so while Mithras is identified at an early date with the sun, and Mithras Helios and Mithras Sol is invoked in Mithraic inscriptions, this goes back to you where there's different types of Jupiter, mm -hmm. different types of Mithras. Mithras and Helios are kept distinct, even though they can be one aspect or one god, they're also two separate gods. So unlike the other mysteries, nature allegory seems to be at the forefront of Mithras cults. The cave mirrors the cosmos, and the seven planets govern the seven grades of initiation. Yeah, dude. Some of duh. the caves, <laughs> yeah, some of the caves had openings where, on specific days and at specific times, the sun's light would enter and illuminate the central panel, which was the head of the god. It's very, very uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, uh, astrology also made its way into the cult of Mithras, unlike other mysteries the zodiac would be displayed on the cave walls. There's also the metaphysical level of analysis first written about in Plutarch's book on Isis and Osiris. In this way, things such as earth and water are not divine in and of themselves, but rather in some supersensual potential. There is a metaphysical dualism evolving a good and unifying principle and its antagonist, the principle of dispersion and annihilation. From here, many Platonic writers invoked mysteries to confirm their philosophical dialectic, and Numenius even believed he had betrayed Eleusis through this mechanism. So I would like to read something from Walter Burkert's Ancient Mystery Cults. This book is extremely psychedelic. Okay. <laughs> like, some of the shit that Burkert puts in this is fucking insane. Like really really interesting uh just analyses like his own analysis of things and i really really like this paragraph about theologia and about um gnostic reaction to christianity uh like castration as regressed progress so i'll get into this now okay uh -huh. it is even more with regard to the mysteries of meter and Attis that the gnostics the Emperor Julian, this is Julian the Apostate, and Seleustius join in strange fascination with the castration phenomenon. The most disgusting and absurd detail becomes integrated into the most sublime evolution of transcendent being. The one, generating the spiritual and the psychic world as a father, continues to create even the material world until finally it has come to a stop, lest it lose itself in unlimited profusion. Progress suddenly has to turn into regression. This is cutting the genitals. Procreation comes to a halt, and the stability of being is secured as it is made to turn back to the origin. Whatever psychologists may think about these sublimations of sexual fantasies, the historian of ideas should take these explanations seriously as Julian did, even if they seem to indicate a loss of life force in the desperate attempt by a dying paganism to stop the flux of change that was transforming the world. So they're cutting their dicks off to try to re stay relevant? Well, yeah, it's, it's a, like regression as progression. That they believe that the, uh, that the Christianity evolving in the world is regression. Right. And that in order to halt the regression, 
you, you cut off the entire process entirely in order to begin anew. And so you cut your dick off? Well, this is it's just a representation. This is there are other things going there, but castration itself is being used as an example here. Right. Of this. Okay. Like this fascination with castration in paganism uh in like uh 4th century paganism. Gotcha. Know this is it's 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 it. just it's a representation of the the fear in the entire that, milieu. <clears throat> yeah. That all of the progress and knowledge gained through devotion to these mysteries is no no christianity it's a reaction to christianity right right i wasn't done so uh, these people are pagans and they're worried yeah, that everything yeah, that they, the apostate yeah that they're, that they're that they're gaining the all of the knowledge and progress that they've gained through devotion to these cults will be lost when everybody just abandons them and becomes christian and loses sight of all of that stuff yeah and so, and so in a last-ditch effort to cling to those mysteries and try to force uh, their dominance over these new upstart monotheistic religions, they are resorting to more and more extreme measures to it's, keep yeah, their rituals the dying of the light. right, yeah. and to keep their their rituals powerful and meaningful. And yeah, got it. So the yeah, and there's come this off. whole psychosexual aspect to it as well. You know, right? Yeah, right. So things are getting so. Is it understood? So it's Gnostic. That, this is like Gnostic paganism. Right. Almost this entire rejection of everything. Through the rejection, the attainment is had. So, is it understood by modern historians that this last, quote unquote, last, right? But like this, like these death throes of Gnostic paganism and um, mystery cults were like the most intense period of them for that reason? You know, I'm not entirely sure of that yeah uh, it does seem like you know burker is making a case that this gnostic thrashing of paganism here you know particularly uh, violent yeah yeah that this was like a, this is a very strong reaction right to christianity so, yeah and i mean anyway, christianity I, I got got real popular real fast so yeah i can yeah, see julian, him. yeah and then julian the apostate he's in the constantinian dynasty you yeah know? it was constantine that converted the empire mm-hmm and then Julian was attempting to uh, convert it back to paganism. Dechristianize. Yeah. Like that yeah. sick song by Vital Remains. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I love that paragraph. It's really quite something. This yeah. whole book is amazing. It's a short book. You could read it in just a couple hours, three hours. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. It's got a lot of really, really crazy prose like that. Any pictures? That, there are lots of pictures, yeah. I like that. Uh, I wasn't asking as a joke. I'm asking because for a lot of this stuff, I feel like some of the pictures are pretty cool. I, I, I was going to plan to do a thread uh, on Twitter after yeah. this episode drops. Around the, the same time with a lot of the pictures from the books that I'm looking at. There's some cool stuff. There's pictures of the leak known. Mm. Um, just a lot of cool artwork, inscriptions. That kind of thing. So, yeah, I was planning to do that. You know what? I need to do a Twitter thread where I can link to some of the info from uh, that person who helped with the yeah the Aztec episode, too. I, like, haven't done anything about that. Oh, yeah. well. Yep. <clears throat> All right. Yeah, so anyway. Um, now let's get into the cult of Mithras, mm -hmm. but only a little bit. We'll dip our toes into the Mithraic mysteries. Yeah, but we'll... next, uh, next Mystery Religions uh, Cults episode, we'll get really into we'll, we'll, we'll take our balls out 
and they might feel the, the coldness of the knife, but we won't make the yeah. first cut. Yeah. Well, the knife would be hot. Yeah, but it might be so hot it feels cold. the anatomy of the Mithraic mysteries. So unlike the other mysteries we've discussed, the cult of Mithras presented a far more mysterious and closed picture. There were no itinerant charismatics traveling from locale to locale to preach the word. There were no public theasoi like the Dionysian cults. The theasoi were the ecstatic retinue, more or less. And there were no public displays of the temple or clergy. Are you playing with something? Oh, I had a quarter in my hand. Could you hear that? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Weird. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it was centered around the initiations performed by secret clubs. It was very Masonic in a sense. The cult of Mithras can really be thought of, in some respects, as closer to the general type of secret societies today than the other mysteries we have looked at. And like uh, Masonism... Um, like the Masonic Temple is a men's club, as is Mithras. Um, <clears throat> so secrecy was nearly absolute. There is a massive scarcity in literary references, and in fact the cult is likely more open now in terms of what is accessible to learn about it than it ever was during its actual time. 
the individual cults were generally limited to about 20 people, and anytime expansion occurred, generally a new cave was established rather than an existing one being enlarged. In episode 1, I mentioned how the cultists would meet in caves in secret. Um, the cult did not have a dichotomy of clergy to adherence, but rather a strict hierarchy of initiation grades. The seven grades in Latin are Corax, Nymphus, Miles, Leo, Persa, Heliodromus, and Pater. They were initially in Greek, but as Rome became the center of the cult, the Latin names took over. The name Pater Patrum was the central authority. It was the responsibility of the Patres to make sure the correct form of these mysteries were practiced, and inscriptions indicate that in order to found a new Mithraeum, a Pater had to be present. A Pater had to supervise the transmission of initiation grades, and through these rules a Sanctissimus Ordo was the guiding force. This is how the mysteries were able to run so uniformly throughout the Roman Empire, unlike the other mysteries. Soldiers and merchants were the recruiters of the Mystae, and it was using the mobility of the legions that the cult could spread so easily. Slaves were permitted to join, but women, uh-uh, fuck no, lady, get out. Yeah. Dudes rock only. Even slaves, but no women. Yeah. Nope. You guys don't have balls. What are you going to even cut off? These are guys being dudes. <laughs> um... Also within the Mithraic mysteries, we see an incompatibility with high-ranking positions within other mysteries. That's what we were, I alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. Eunapius tells of how Nestorius, the hierophant of Eleusis in the mid to late 4th century CE, had prophesied that his successor would not be qualified, a quote, to touch the hierophantic throne since he would have been consecrated to other gods and would have sworn secret oaths not to supervise other shrines. The last hierophant of Eleusis... Uh, his successor was a Mithraic potter. This is not altogether unheard of in ancient mysteries, although it is weird that Nestorius would make this claim about something that his successor himself seemed ignorant of. It's possible Nestorius had anticipated a Christian taking over, and it was reinterpreted when a Mithraic supporter took over. But regardless, the stance against Mithraism taken by Nestorius and Eunapius is one of caution on archaic lines, according to Berger. It's not about battling false gods, but an acknowledgement of demarcation. Hmm. Alright. Who's Mithras? Who's this fucking guy? <laughs> Who is it? Who's this fella? Let's get down to it, alright? Yeah, let's. Who is this Mithras guy that is so secretive and who has continued to captivate scholars and students of history for millennia? In the Roman mysteries of Mithras, the titular god is portrayed as a divine bull slayer. <laughs> but how exactly he came to hold this position is a long, complex, and unfortunately, largely unknown process. Mithras, Mithras was already among the ancient Indo-Iranian pantheon as a god of light, truth, and integrity. In the Vedic literature of India, Mitra is allied with Varuna, who is the god of heaven. In Zoroastrianism, Mithra is the champion of truth of Ahura Mazda, and the warrior against the falsehood of Ariman. The Zoroastrian text Avesta tells Mithra, uh, calls Mithra the lord of wide pastures, and claims that he provides cattle, prosperity, and light. The Magi priests would further develop the beliefs around Mithra as his worship spread to the west. Plutarch claims that some of the pirates based in southeastern Asia Minor during the 1st century BCE were initiated into the mysteries of Mithras. I wonder if these were uh, some of the pirates maybe that were fucking with Julius Caesar. Maybe, yeah. Oh. 
Um, so the mysteries of Mithras really began to flourish from the 2nd century CE onward in the Roman world, and were especially prevalent in ports, cities, and frontiers of the empire, as it was favored by sailors, soldiers, and imperial officers. All men. Uh, so this is really interesting, too. This, you know, the other mysteries that we've talked about really begin flourishing in the BCE era, but now we're in the CE era when Mithras really comes out. And again, the cult was really a men's club, which were unlike other mysteries that welcomed women. The Christian author Tertullian claims that Mithraic initiates underwent ordeals and tests of valor, were baptized or washed with water, and were sealed on their foreheads. Uh, like, you know, the, you had to do dares when you were yeah. there. Like, yeah. Fucking, yeah. Um, so the Christian author Justin Martyr claims that the initiates took bread and a cup of water or mixed water wine. And this was perhaps symbolizing the blood and body of the bull and uttered formulas at a holy meal. And anybody with even passing familiarity of Christian sacraments will notice the similarity with the Eucharist. Right, yeah. So who knows if that was real and Justin Martyr's just kind of doing a thing since he was Christian, or maybe there's, you know, some syncretism there. Justin yeah. Martyr sounds like he was, like, the singer in a fucking screamo band. I, I was literally just thinking that. Like, some, like, <laughs> Christian metalcore band. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, man. So it is entirely unclear as to exactly what the cult of Mithras was. Though, uh, and what was represented in the mosaics within the Mithraim caves. The interpretations of the cult tend to be quite controversial, especially when it comes to the possible Zoroastrian background of the themes in the Roman mysteries. Right. There are clear Persian themes in the entire and initiation grades. Mithras slaying the bull is accompanied visually by a snake and scorpion, and it's possible this indicates some dualistic struggle of good and evil, similar to Zoroastrianism, mm -hmm. again, which has Ahura Mazda versus Ahriman. Right. However, it is also possible, and some would argue much more likely, that the representations on the cave are to be understood astronomically or astrologically. In this manner, the snake, scorpion, and bull are to be identified with the constellations Hydra, Scorpio, and Taurus. Okay. Mithras himself could be the constellation Perseus, dressed in Persian garb and ready to strike at the bull with a knife. For this reason, Mithras could be a cult of cosmic salvation. Oh. Yeah. So, we will end this episode here, though, and in the final installment of the Ancient Mystery series, we will take a much deeper look into the cult of Mithras, go over some of the iconography and myriad interpretations of the cult, and give some closing thoughts in general on the series and the mysteries of the ancient Mediterranean. I will also say that there are some people, and these are largely, and I probably would say correctly, uh, disregarded. A lot of people have these weird, like, new, like, theories about what Mithras was. Like, there are people that uh, purport that it is some uh, psychedelic mushroom cult. Oh. Um, there are some people that believe that it was all about cosmology and, like, the moving of celestial bodies. All these types of things. Um, but we'll get into that next time. All right. And again, my sources were the same as the first two episodes. Walter Burkert's Ancient Mystery Cults and Marvin W. Myers' The Ancient Mysteries. Marvin. Yeah. Wow, man. Uh, dude, I love... I'm. Can I admit something to you? Sure. This stuff confuses the shit out of me. <laughs> it does. And I know it's supposed to. It's a mystery cult. But, like, some of yeah. the... Some of the how do I even describe what I'm trying to say here? So um, <laughs> it seems to me like a lot of these cults really just boiled down to like, there is a secret. Maybe none of us actually know it. 
you've got to do a bunch of crazy shit to maybe find out what it well, is. Well, no, there, there would be a secret at the end of it. Oh, there, somebody there, would, like, whisper something to, be... to you? No, it would be in the right. Remember, again, it's all about what happens in the moment of the ritual. But there right. would be a final uh, final revelation of something. Right, so, but, like... to complete your journey through the cult. Remember, we talked about this in... In the first episode about, no, I, I, you know, that the cults are do, uh, donatist in nature. You know, it's about, uh, you know, you donate something of yours and through going through the grades, you get to this understanding that will help you with something in your life. Right. Well, so, okay. So I guess what I'm confused about is like, do we not know what what the nature of these, you know, revelations was? No, or- I've... I've been talking about this the whole time, is that a lot of this is lost. Right. Okay. So my confusion is justified because the pieces that I'm missing just don't exist. A lot of times, yeah. I mean, like the clearest example we have, again, is in Apuleius' Golden Ass. Right. About Isis and Osiris. I mean, we know a lot of these rituals. But, you know, again, that's why I said that these evolve through nature, allegory, myth, and also metaphysics. You know, that that the ancient people's understanding of these myths would change throughout time. You know, somebody's understanding of this myth, or some of these myths in 400 BCE, would be different than somebody's in 200 CE. Right, yeah. You know, these, these are ever-evolving as well. Yeah, so much of our, of our And, and really, to... you have to understand the milieu of the ancient world, which is why I'm bringing in things like Neoplatonism right. and Gnosticism and stuff like that, because, you know, you start to get all of these, like, different shifting perceptions of reality, and they are represented as well in these myths. Right. So, so, so much of it is really just lost due to lack of context, but also like by nature of the, and I know you've been saying this stuff. I just yeah. like, I guess I just sort of felt like I was missing something, but I guess not. Necessarily. There's a reason they're called mysteries. Right. It just is <laughs> mysterious. And so yeah. I guess I just wonder, like, I just wonder about the, the nature of these revelations, right? Like <laughs> it, what it makes me think of. And what I hope I'm wrong about, but what makes me think of is there was a zoo, I think it's the Franklin Park Zoo in Massachusetts, okay. that I would go to as a kid. Yeah. And when you walk up right before you or right after you enter, there's this like little exhibit. It's like, step forward and see the amazing red bat. Yeah. And I remember being a little kid and my dad being like, oh, like, are you excited? You, you excited to see the amazing red bat? And I was like, wow, I didn't know that you, there could be a red bat. I thought bats were all black or brown. And it's this, like, little viewing hole into this, like, you know, enclosure. And when you finally step up and look through the thing, dimly lit hanging in the back of the cavern is just a red wiffle ball bat hanging and lit by a backlight. <laughs> I like No, it's hysterical. It's funny. That's great. I'm glad that's there. But that's how I think about a lot of these revelations. It's like, well, yeah, no, what could you possibly have? What kind of knowledge could you possibly have that, like, if I cut my dick off, you're like, okay, cool. Now you can know this. Like, because it makes you closer to the god Addis and through his struggles. And right. So and so I guess. the entire point, it's not like you walk in the door, balls are gone. I know. Like, you know what I mean? That this would be like, like, uh, like this is like a slow building process and you get closer and closer to becoming like Addis and then finally in this like ecstatic reverie the moment happens you know your your balls aren't off in the first one it's the slow progression of steps right. and initiation grades and it would be something that you yourself would choose not everybody took the balls off so if you did take them <laughs> off like not everybody castrated themselves I know, I know. so if you did it's because you have gone on a journey that has uh, been uh, both 
that you are a part of that that you have felt real co- deeply like yeah. people weren't cutting their balls off willy-nilly you know this is like a very personal journey that was going on yeah and happening for these people and it would generally happen in this like ecstatic uh, uh ecstatic moment where people would be like take the fuckers off i'm ready to be like Addis." yeah yeah fair okay and so and i guess that also presupposes think of it like flagellation or something like that you know it's it is to totally experience things the way the god i think i'm i'm doing myself and the subject matter a bit of a disservice because i'm i'm sometimes i have a hard time reminding myself that like not everybody views this stuff and this is silly but like not everybody views this stuff through like an incredulous lens or like just like the lens of someone who's like interested but like doesn't believe and I think part of that is because I'm like completely, you know, a religious for the most part. Um, yeah. I don't like calling myself an atheist because I think that's kind of yucky. But like, yeah, I'm I'm I live without religion, and there is no ritual of that nature in my day to day existence. And so like, I I just have a hard time putting myself in the headspace where I'm like a person who believes in the god Addis enough that that in and of itself that closeness to that being or mm-hmm. or the metaphysical journey to achieve that closeness could conceivably have enough reward to justify self-mutilation but obviously yeah. there are people right now who all feel that strongly about yeah. about all sorts yeah. of stuff yeah. like kissing rattlesnakes and shit and like to me or that is fucking so- dude a suicide you know suicide bombing or something like that yeah totally yeah like you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm definitely not an atheist. Uh, I know we've joked in the past about us being that, but, you know, I'm definitely not an atheist. You know, I don't exactly adhere to a single religion. I definitely uh, feel things, and uh, I maybe lean certain ways, but, um, you know, so I, you know, I couldn't put myself into the mindset of somebody ready to take the fucking balls off. I like them. I like, uh, you know. Yeah, dude, I love your balls. It's a fucking good set okay. of balls. Um, uh, but... Excuse me, but, uh, you're you know, deflecting my compliment. This, you don't need to compliment my balls. You're, you know, I'm feeling unappreciated again, and you know how I get when I feel unappreciated. Maybe you should cut yours off. And, you know. Been there, done that. My whole point in asking this question is when am I going to get my knowledge? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, uh, you know, that's that. Um, although, so for my next episode, it will be different. Um, you know, now that we've recorded this, got to reach out to somebody. Um, but, uh, I really thank you guys for uh, listening to tuning in. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, you know, we've been having some good months lately, uh, so that's awesome. But remember, not only do we do this for free, but we spread by word of mouth. And we would maybe like the free part to go away soon. So if you could please tell your friends, your family, your coworkers, your uh, hierophants, uh, the the priests uh, giving the rights of self-mutilation and your and your mystery cults. Yeah. Tell them about us. Tell them. Uh, you know, we'd really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, keep on the lookout because I think we're, we talked about it a, a few minutes ago, but we're going to update some things on, uh, on the Twitter that uh, linked it because yeah. I have to put out some more information about my Aztec series, which I will get back to, yeah. don't worry. And then, um, yeah, Evan wants to put up some stuff about mystery cults, which, you know, if you're like me and you find yourself occasionally thinking, do I have any fucking idea what's going on with these cults right now? Um, That should probably help you. Yeah, you can see some urns. Yeah, urns are uh, cool. Vases. 
and uh, in, you know, and uh, inscriptions, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, urns, inscriptions, uh, mosaics, chopped off balls. Yeah, shriveled up units. Yeah, yeah, the the holy prepus. <laughs> <laughs> prepus. Um, That's a real relic too. Yeah, no, I I uh, believe it. All right. Uh, on that note, anyway. thank you guys, and we'll see you next time. Peace. Good. But if you forget the birthplace